0: It's Friday the 29th of October. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's top headlines, Ireland's first two carbon budgets announced, Italian government pays people to retrofit their houses, and we preview COP26 with Philip Ocher Hayes. Also coming up in this week's show, Anna returns to the story of the mean bog bog slide, and Cara is back with another piece of sustainability advice. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I'm Dara Wynn and we are midway through the series now and have a fantastic episode coming up. It's going to be a little bit different to what we've done before, as well as our usual mix of features and explainers. We have an extended interview with Philip Hayes explaining everything you need to know about COP26. That's coming up shortly, but first I'm joined in the newsroom by Kira Tiernan. Kira, how are you getting on?
1: I'm not too bad, Dara. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you. I'm good.
1: good. Um, So what's our first story this week?
0: So the first one, it's the big one that we've been waiting for for a while. It's the announcement of carbon budgets in Ireland. So if you've been listening to the series, you will know that Ireland is aiming to reduce its emissions by 51% by 2030. And the announcement of this budget is telling us how much we're going to cut our emissions for each year up until then.
1: Yeah, so for 2021 to 2026, it'll be a 4.8% reduction, while the average year-on-year reductions for the second half of the budget up to 2030 is set at 8.3%. Both of those are quite significant numbers.
0: Yeah, so what we're looking at is smaller changes in the first few years and then bigger changes as we approach that 2030 deadline. So what we should be looking out for in the next couple of years is small changes, maybe improving efficiencies and reducing waste that kind of stuff to get the reductions that we need but also we need to be putting in sort of long-term plans so that it's easier for us to meet those targets in the second half of the decade so we'll be looking at maybe putting in long-term transport strategies maybe long-term food strategies looking at upskilling people to uh, retrofit houses that kind of stuff
1: Yeah, so the carbon budgets provide a framework for how much we need to reduce our emissions year on year, Um, but the Climate Action Plan, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, will be outlining the steps that Ireland will be taking um, to make the necessary reductions. Climate Change Advisory Council Chair Mary Donnelly said that this will likely require significant investments across the economy. Um, so, speaking of significant investments, we can look to our friends over in Italy who are in the news this week.
0: Yeah, so we could do worse than get inspiration from Italy for our climate action plan because the Italian government are paying citizens to retrofit their houses.
1: Wow, that's generous.
0: It sure is, it sure is. So they are giving 110% of the cost if you want to insulate your house or get solar panels or a heat pump. So how this works is you pay the money up front and then you get 110% of that back in taxes over five years.
1: Wow, that sounds like a huge incentive and there's really no downside there for households because if they get all of the money back from their retrofitting as well as future lower costs on energy consumption in their households, and um, they're making money and saving money on that on taking that action.
0: Exactly, exactly. And then also people, if they don't have the money upfront, they can get a loan from the bank and the extra ten percent will then pay off that bank interest. So they're essentially getting it for without having to put up any upfront cost. And in terms of how much of an impact it has had and the uptake that there's been, the government in Rome have claimed that the reduced emissions from home heating in the first eight months of this year are the same as in the entirety of the last 20 years. Um, So, yeah, hopefully we see that kind of ambition in our climate action plan in the next couple of weeks. Um, Absolutely. A country that we won't want to be copying um, is Brazil, and we're going yeah. to Brazil for our not climate story, Kira. Um, so you're stepping into Anna's shoes. I'm stepping this week.
1: into Anna's shoes. I hope I do her justice for this not climate news story this week. But um, yep, the story that was reported in the Irish Times was that a Brazilian Senate committee has recommended that the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, should face a series of criminal indictments for actions and omissions related to the world's second highest COVID-19 death toll Um, so since the start of the pandemic Bolsonaro has um, deliberately ignored the science of health professionals and deliberately sabotaged local leaders restrictions aimed to reduce the spread of COVID-19 resulting in a huge death toll for that country
0: okay so what what has that got to do with climate change
1: Um, Well, what it's got to do with climate change, Dara, is that he didn't listen to the science on COVID. And similarly, he's guilty of not listening to the science on climate change. He's deliberately allowing the destruction of the Amazon in the name of profit and at the expense of um, the communities who live there um, and all of our futures, really.
0: Yeah, so there is a really, really interesting parallel there because, as you say, he didn't listen to the science and now people are recommending that he faces criminal charges in relation to COVID. And leaders across the world aren't listening to the science on climate change. And speaking specifically of Bolsonaro, there's a group of climate lawyers who have asked the International Criminal Court to investigate his crimes against nature because they say that they're crimes against humanity And separately, there's a campaign for ecocide to be recognized as a crime in the International Criminal Court. So ecocide is the destruction of nature. And there are lots of environmentalists campaigning that this should be recognized as a crime.
1: Yeah, I'll be keeping a close eye on the progress of that because it would be incredibly significant for the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, ideally, we would want our politicians to not be destroying nature. But for those who are uh it would be good to see to see uh them held accountable. Yes, exactly, exactly. All right, that is it from the newsroom today. Uh thanks very much Kira and we'll we Be back to you for the event guide a little later on. Woo! Now, if that news roundup seemed a little shorter than usual, that's because it was. We have an extended interview with Philip Boucher-Hayes previewing COP coming up here at the Climate Alarm Clock. And also coming up, Cara chats to Lara McCann from Climate Love Ireland. But first, for those of you who have missed Anna's dulcet tones in our news roundup, here comes part three of her feature about Mean Bog.
2: It's almost one year since the bog burst and the black peat slid down the slope at Mean Bog Wind Farm. The combination of wind construction, peatlands and forestry most likely led to that disaster. Last time, we looked at how the demand for renewable energy is set to grow dramatically by 2030 and how data centres are driving a lot of that demand. The country's new carbon budgets require up to 80% emissions reductions from the electricity sector. So that means a lot more wind energy is needed. Today, we have just over 4.3 gigawatts of onshore installed wind capacity in the Republic. The Climate Action Plan had a target of 8 gigawatts. That's almost double what we have today. So where will this 4 gigawatts of onshore wind be placed? We've been told that uplands in the west are not the best location, and we've seen how wind farms in Mean Bog, and before that Derry Bryan, have caused bogslides. And the Wind Energy Association now tells us that there are more than 600 megawatts of wind farm ready for construction. One such wind farm is planned for the Gibara Valley, just 30 miles northwest of Mean Bog. I spoke to Patricia Sharkey of the Gibara Conservation Group, who told me that locals there are very worried about the plan for Cloughercore Wind Farm. The Gibara is well known to people in West Donegal. The bridge across the estuary links Glenties to the Rosses and it's very beautiful. From the bridge, you look upstream into the mountains towards Vay National Park, downstream to sand dunes and the sea. Patricia told me about the importance of the area.
3: This is a vital corridor between Vay National Park and the uh, Vay and Derryvee Mountains and at Ardra, all the way down to Glen Column Kill. the whole coastal area. And we're supposed to be protecting our coasts and our estuaries.
2: The wind farm proposal is for 23 turbines, up to 200 meters in height, and they would generate 140 megawatts of wind energy. And just as a comparison, the spire in Dublin is only 120 meters high, so you can imagine the visual effect of those turbines in this mountain landscape. The developer is Orsted, a Danish company, and they have a very slick presentation on their website. In it, they tell us that the wind farm site is a mixture of conifer forest, peat bogs, and transitional woodland. They also tell us that streams on the site drain into the Gibara River. Sure, what could go wrong? Or as the locals say, remember Mean Bog? Patricia described the terrain and the risks
3: very well. Bogland, peatland, that has had some conifers on it and parts. And mountain, granite mountain covered in peat, with lakes and rivers running down into the Gwybarra, and so there's absolutely no way, I mean, we'd have a repeat of mean bog, uh, we'd have a bog slide. The is even steeper than mean bog. Mean bog's a kind of a gentle valley, but uh, the mountains here rise quite high.
2: The Gwybarra River is a salmon and sea trout fishery. It's also on the flight path for golden eagles from Glenvay National Park, and other rare and endangered birds of prey. The valley has red deer, pine martens and lots of other wildlife. This is the question that Patricia poses to us all.
3: How could you take up a mountains and uh, fill it with concrete and not pollute the rivers? It's just ludicrous. In
2: 2020, wind energy provided 36% of our electricity needs. As a comparison, coal and peat provided only 8%, but they generated 29% of our CO2 emissions. So it's very clear that wind is important to decarbonising our electricity. But saving areas like the Gibara, protecting Golden Eagles and Salmon Rivers, restoring our bogs, these are all vital too. As a country, do we need to talk more about how we're going to balance those competing needs? Next week, we'll be going back to the bog to explore just how important our bogs are to us.
0: That was Anna Pringle there, and she will be back with us in the newsroom next week at the Climate Alarm Clock, Ireland's weekly climate news podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter at the Climate Alarm. Now, as many of you know, COP26 is happening in Glasgow in the first couple of weeks in November. And to get a more detailed look of what's going to be happening over there, I spoke to Philip Boucher-Hayes, who will be reporting from Glasgow for RTE. So let's go over to that interview now. Philip, you're very welcome to The Climate Alarm Clock. Long-time you listener,
4: first-time contributor to the program. <laughs> Lovely to be here, Dara.
0: Um so just can you start off by telling us what exactly COP26 is and what's going to be happening over in Glasgow? in the next
4: couple of weeks. COP is a typically unhelpful United Nations way of saying what should very simply be called a Global Climate Summit. They call it the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework on Climate Change Convention. But as I say, it is basically a summit. They happen every year, but there are some years that are bigger than others because more work goes into them beforehand and greater expectations are created around them. Um, Obviously, we weren't able to have one last year. This one was supposed to have been last year. And it is seen as the, uh, the cop that is supposed to copper fasten, excuse the pun, Uh, what it was that happened in Paris. The commitments that were made in Paris were supposed to see how far what has been promised by each nation state to keep us to 1.5 or under 2 degrees of warming. And so far, the level of commitment isn't good. And that is why the expectations for uh, the Glasgow COP Uh, are being set pretty low because what has been promised by countries to date is not going to keep us below 1.5 degrees. Indeed, there's one very reputable think tank, Chatham House, who have done a good bit of research in this area and their estimation is that our chances, the world's chances of now keeping ourselves to 1.5 degrees of warming stands at 1% uh, and that... The way that we are doing business at the moment, we are very much on target for three degrees of warming by the end of the century.
0: So what is actually going to happen over the over the couple of weeks in Glasgow then?
4: But the way I read it is that there are two big issues to address here and both of them are gaps. Gaps between what we say we're going to do and what we're actually going to do. The first of them is the emissions gap, which I've already referred to there. That gap between what we have promised to do, what we have said we will undertake, what and what needs to be done, what the science tells us that we need to be done. And that is a fairly gaping chasm uh, at this stage that... Um, the number of countries that haven't made commitments of any kind or the number of countries that haven't made commitments with any costing or with any timeline. And perhaps the most depressing thing about the state of global play on that is that Ireland, a country that by its own standards and by the standard of the narrative here at the moment recognises that we haven't done particularly well Has actually done considerably better than a very large number of other developed nations uh, who are going to be turning up at COP. The second gap is the finance gap. And this is where the pent up frustrations and annoyances of the developing world are going to come into play. Because the big commitment that the developed world made to poorer nations at Paris was okay we're going to help fund mitigation for you and that we're going to do that to the tune of $100 billion a year, which was supposed to have started last year, but already we in the developed world have under-delivered on that. The one figure that suggests that we're $20 billion shy, shy um, – that we've only managed to commit 80 billion. But an awful lot of that money is coming in the form of loans and tied loans. You can have this money if you build, or if you pay for the wind farm uh, that we're going to sell you kind of uh, loans. And that very little of it is actually grants. In fact, only 20% of it, of that 100 billion figure is grants that we will give without tying without any kind of restriction to developed uh, developing nations uh, to sort out uh, their own climate ambitions and i think that's going to be one of the major themes that you're going to see coming from the group of 77 countries the smaller Uh, nations, the low-lying nations like the Marshall Islands who have marshalled themselves over the course of the last couple of COPs to act in unison as a counterbalance to the bigger, richer countries. And they have at previous COPs packed quite a a punch above their weight. But the big question at this COP is are they going to be there in sufficient numbers? Are the delegations actually, because of COVID restrictions, because so many people from these countries aren't vaccinated, are they going to actually be able to get there so that in sufficient numbers so that their message is heard loudly enough?
0: Yeah, and of course those nations were a huge part in getting the 1.5 degree target put into the Paris Agreement so you've touched on some differences between COP21 in Paris and COP26 in Glasgow. Are there any other differences you want to mention that you haven't mentioned so far?
4: In some respects and this I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing Paris, but in some respects Paris was easy. It required leaders to sign up to a number of uh, aspirations that they knew they personally were unlikely to have to deliver on. Like Enda Kenny signed it and he has passed the baton on now to different Taoiseach, different government. That has happened the world over. So it was relatively easy to get agreement on something that is not ultimately legally binding uh, on, on anybody that doesn't want it to be compared to what we now have to do at Glasgow, which is very much the working end of this on actually tying down those commitments getting that money seeing costed timelines for the implementation of the policies that will actually reduce emissions and that's really really much much tougher I mean I liken it in terms of our own experience uh, on this island to the Good Friday Agreement that was a hard fought agreement it was not easy to get to but it's the work that came after the good friday agreement was signed in 1998 all of those tedious lancaster house negotiations all of the proroguing of um Stormont that has happened the number of times government has collapsed there that's the really hard work the nuts and bolts of what we're trying to achieve now in climate action that this cop is about so no It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be glamorous. An awful lot of it is going to be very tedious. It's going to be challenging, from my point of view, to make it sound interesting. But the thing that I suppose does make it interesting is just how important it is.
0: Um, What kind of delegation will the Irish government be sending to COP?
4: I would love to be able to give you an exact figure on that. I have talked to the climate section within the Department of Taoiseach. They haven't answered that question. I haven't got an answer yet from Eamon Ryan's department. So I can't tell you exactly who is going to be on the delegation, but typically it has been about 40 people in the past. That includes government ministers. I mean, we know the Taoiseach is going, Eamon Ryan is going. I think the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell, is going as well. They will have support from within their departments, but there will also be government agencies there. Um, There will be quite a number of people from the EPA who will be doing that work, which... Frankly, there's only a small number of human beings in the world actually understand or are able to translate the mechanics of what happens at a COP in these plenary sessions. I know I certainly, any time I've watched this stuff in the past, I've gone... What on earth are they talking about? Can somebody please provide simultaneous translation? I recognise all of the sounds and the words here as being English, but it doesn't have any of the meaning of English to me. And this is the really highly technically specific stuff that the people from the EPA and other agencies will be doing uh, that um, is one that Ireland doesn't have to do really very much more other than watch out for its own interests because uh, we don't have to be out in front. We are part of the 27 other members of the, uh, the EU who meet... Every morning of a COP to discuss what it is that's going to come up that day. I gather that an awful lot of those meetings are actually just about containing Poland and making sure that Poland is still on side, making sure we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. But then Ireland doesn't actually have to stand out in front an awful lot in terms of what we do in the individual negotiations. We will just be saying, we're going to be following the Brussels line, the Commission's line, whatever it is uh, that the the twenty seven stand um or say that they are going to commit to.
0: So then, in terms of in terms of the potential outcomes from COP, what is the best case scenario? What are some of the best case scenario outcomes, and what do you think are the likely outcomes?
4: I always think that the worst thing that we can do coming out of any of these cops except Paris where a big deal was signed is rush to judgement in on the day or the day after it's going to take quite some time for scientists to go away and come back with a, a measured analysis of what the commitments are actually going to mean in terms of meeting the targets set by the science so if you want to ask me what's this COP going to achieve or in two weeks time when it's over what has it achieved I would say let's just hold the fire let's just wait and play a longer game here but it's it's dispiriting uh, to say the least of it that the most recklessly optimistic politician of his generation Boris Johnson who is supposed to be the leading figure at this COP uh, is somebody who has set, I think what he said was a a, a six in ten chance uh, of anything particularly meaningful coming out of this conference, other than what we have already heard by way of the commitments that have been made by countries, which are let's you know let's be realistic about this. There are some phenomenal things that have happened in the course of the last five years, things which we should be optimistic about and shouldn't despair. China has said that it is going to stop funding coal projects uh, overseas in its Belt and Road client countries. They have said that they are going to start reducing their emissions by 2030 and uh, by 2060 would hope to be out of uh, the fossil fuel business altogether. These are not measures which are moving in line with what the science says needs to be done, but they are very, very significant things. Uh, And China has a history as well of under-promising but over-delivering. So let's not throw the hands up in the air and walk away from this in despair. Just yet there is reason to believe that we are starting to move very slowly in the right direction, I just wouldn't be convinced that we're going to do it in time to avert two degrees or even three degrees of change by the end of the century. So while you're over there, then
0: what will you be keeping an eye on over there? What kind of indicators are you going to be looking for? What are the kind of things, apart from having to uh, translate uh, all all the technical speak, what kind of things are you keeping an eye out on?
4: I've just referred to one of them, I'd be very interested to see how all of those countries in China's geographical orbit respond to this initiative from China. Uh, And how they take advantage of that and incorporate that into their own targets. And are we going to see a leap forward uh, as a consequence of that? But this is, I suppose, because I'm a bit of a a geopolitics nerd and tend to look very, very far afield um, from my news, which doesn't always feel very relevant, I suppose, to people back here. And that is one of the difficulties of reporting something like the COP, is that it happens at so many pay grades, if you like, above the salary checks that we're going to be receiving in this country. It's it's hard to make what happens there uh, over the course of the first two weeks of November feel immediately relevant to what's going to happen in Ireland. But I think that one of the things that could possibly have pretty short-term consequences for us is the um, the degree to which action and implementation take place on this uh, methane deal that has been agreed between the united states and the eu and how many more countries sign up to that because there are really only three ways of limiting methane. One is by limiting uh, mining for extraction of fossil fuels. Uh, second is uh, food waste. And we seem to be very, very slow in actually addressing that. Um, I think many people feel that we've done as much as we possibly can without completely interrupting food systems, which then places an even bigger pressure on the agriculture sector. To deliver more on re- methane reductions, so that's something that's going to have a pretty big impact almost immediately on an already very contentious area of debate—that uh, being you know, emissions reduction from the the agriculture sector and what is and isn't viable.
0: That was Philip Boucher Hayes, and if the climate alarm clock just isn't giving you enough of your climate podcast hit. Philip has a new podcast called Hot Mess, which looks at the gap between Ireland's climate aspirations and its actual climate action. It's available wherever you get your podcasts or you can hear it on Mondays at 6.30 on RTE Radio 1. And you can hear more of Philip's COP insights on RTE's Drive Time and Today with Claire Byrne over the next couple of weeks. Still to come on the Climate Alarm Clock, Our Book of Leaves collaboration is back, but now it's time for this week's Irish Enviro Event Guide.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Irish Enviro Event Guide for the 1st to the 7th of November. Calling all my young climate activists, SpunOut.ie are hosting a series of sustainable fashion workshops over four weeks for 16 to 25 year olds. You'll meet like minded people, learn from industry professionals, and gain experience in sustainable fashion. Topics include sustainability on a budget, the circular economy, and managing climate anxiety. You can expect to grow your skills in leadership, climate change communications, and practical upcycling. Spaces are limited and applications close this Monday, November 1st. Apply online via SpunOut.ie. There's a national climate strike for climate justice on Saturday, the 6th of November at 12pm, starting at the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin. I strongly encourage anyone who can make it to attend. Protests send a clear signal to political leaders. They're also inspiring, positive and energising occasions which make for a fun day out. Why not get arty and make some signs with your friends and family beforehand? Or carry the buzz onto the pub afterwards. We hope to see you there. If you want to brush up on all things COP26, the Good Information Project are hosting an event about the summit and what Ireland and Europe can do to tackle climate change. Speakers include Professor Peter Thorne and Sinead Mercier, both highly respected researchers in the climate space. This event aims to make clear where we currently stand with climate change and what needs to be done to stop it. It's free and taking place in Athlone, County Westmeath on Tuesday, the 2nd of November from half six to nine. Register through eventbrite.ie. REACT is the Festival for a Sustainable Belfast, taking place from the 2nd to the 12th of November. There is something for everyone at this festival with a mix of 25 online and in-person events across 10 various themes. The festival covers everything from adaptation to innovation and from finance to future vision. The mix of talks, workshops and experiential events are an awesome way to get involved. Information on reactfestival.co.uk. The Irish Rural Link and Community Wetlands Forum are hosting workshops across multiple dates in November, connecting communities with peatlands, bogs are fundamental for biodiversity and sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as natural carbon sinks. The day-long workshops support communities to engage with peatlands, giving them a say in the future of their local bogs. This week's workshops are taking place in Lullymoor, County Kildare, on the 6th of November and Rath Owen, County Westmeath, on the 7th of November. Register through eventbrite.ie. That's it for this week's events. Links to the mentioned events can be found in the description of this week's episode. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for a detailed roundup of these and additional unmentioned events. If you know of any events taking place, get in touch with us at climatealarmclock at gmail.com.
0: Thanks, Kira. Great collection of events there, as always. Now we're returning to our Book of Leaves collaboration so we're handing back to Cara who's chatting to Lara from Climate Love Ireland who has a simple but important leaf to share.
5: This week I was talking to Lara McCann. I have her here. She is a member of Climate Love Ireland and she also set up A hundred percent Reloved, which is a campaign where you wear a pin and you spark a conversation around the clothes that you're wearing being secondhand or hand-me-downs, and yeah, I loved it. So you could definitely check out her episode for more. But Lara, can you share with us your one suggestion for people to take out of your book?
1: um something that was super helpful and transformational for me this year was trying to get like a walk or some time out in nature every day and that just might mean a walk and sitting on a bench and just kind of trying to stay still and just be really present and i found that really helped me with any sort of eco anxiety or feeling like i was getting too stressed or anything like that it always just brought me back down to earth and i think that's like just one of one of the core components Components of a uh, some effective climate action.
5: Definitely, some self-care, getting out in nature, yeah. minding yourself. Oh, lovely! Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So there was Lara from Climate Love Ireland and 100% reloved with some tips managing eco anxiety and I think this is another important thing to think about when it comes to tackling climate change because what's sustainable for the planet also has to be sustainable for us mentally and physically and we can't be there for the planet if you know we're burnt out or or tired so give yourself that downtime and that time in nature, as Lara suggests, something that I definitely do not do enough of myself. So I really do need to try (laughs) take that leaf out of Lara's book. But Lara will be featured in episode 57 of Book of Leaves, if I recall correctly. And yeah, you can listen to her story there. But make sure you follow Climate Love Ireland, which is a lovely, engaging community of activists from again all walks of life and if you're interested in getting yourself a pin or a brooch or a patch that you can wear on any secondhand clothes vintage clothes clothes that you stole from your sister and they don't know about it yet and the whole idea is when people say that's a nice pin or where'd you get that you can say oh this is from a campaign highlighting secondhand clothes this thing that I'm wearing is secondhand and whatnot I think it's a really cool idea but yeah there are some other ideas there and in Lara's episode and I hope you enjoyed that suggestion from her and I'll talk to you guys soon.
0: i think that might have been my favorite leaf so far thanks very much cara and lara and that's it for this week between the carbon budgets and cop it feels like there's a lot of really heavy climate stuff going on at the moment which is all the more reason to take some action so just a reminder that the cop coalition march for climate justice on the 6th of november is a great way for you to show that you want the radical climate action we need And if it's all feeling a bit much, why not take a leaf out of Lara's book and get back to nature? Before we go, a reminder to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter at The Climate Alarm. And do subscribe and review the podcast wherever you listen. You can email us on climatealarmclock at gmail.com. And next week, we'll be back with more features, chats, interviews and explainers. Until then, goodbye.